Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, where today's health leaders help to forge the leaders of tomorrow. I'm your host, Mark Bonica, of the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Our website is healthleaderforge.org, where you can find information about subscribing to the podcast, links and information related to the episode, as well as our complete archives. Today's guest is Warren West, the CEO of North Country Healthcare. North Country Healthcare is a newly founded system of four critical access hospitals in the North Country of New Hampshire. North Country Healthcare is a unique system because it does not include a larger community hospital or medical center as an anchor. Warren started his career in healthcare at the age of 16 when he became a housekeeper at Children's Specialized Hospital in New Jersey, a rehabilitation hospital where he would eventually rise to be the vice president for administration. In this podcast, we talk about Warren's career, about his leadership philosophy, and the challenges of providing comprehensive healthcare in a rural setting in a time of massive change in the industry. I've produced two versions of this podcast, an extended version that includes our complete conversation and an abridged version. You are listening to the extended version. If you'd like to listen to the abridged version, please see our website. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Don't forget to leave us feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you may be accessing this recording. Thanks for listening. And here is Warren West. Welcome to The Forge, Warren. Thank you. Glad to be here. So you began your career in healthcare pretty early. At the age of 16, you started working as a housekeeper at Children's Specialized Hospitals in Mountainside, New Jersey. I mean, was that your first job in the formal sector? That was my first job ever. Really? Yep. How did you come to be working at the, at the hospital? You know how things work. You have networks. My mother worked at the hospital, and she got me a part-time job in the housekeeping department because she didn't want me uh, terror- terrorizing the neighborhood anymore and wanted me to re- be responsible. Excellent. So what were your impressions of healthcare as a young man? At 16, I probably didn't appreciate it as much as I did as I grew through that organization. I sort of at that point in time thought of it as just a job to make some money. It was close to home. I could ride my bike. But through the years of service there, I clearly learned that the uh, mission we have in healthcare is the best mission in the world. And those kids taught me everything about the mission. We had kids at uh, Children's Specialized Hospital who will never be the same again because something happened to them in their lives, whether it was a uh, bike accident, near drowning. But they were severely challenged physically, and some of them were severely challenged mentally because of their accidents. But what I learned from them is they never gave up the spirit of life. And um, they always thought tomorrow was going to be a better day. And that gave me really motivation to get into healthcare. Wow. is what I learned from those kids. You received your Bachelor of Arts in Public Administration at Waynesburg College. What, did, what drew you to Waynesburg, and why Public Service Administration? Were you already thinking healthcare at that point? or No. I think at that point in time, as most folks, you know, you go to college. I went to college because I felt it was the only thing that – it was the thing I needed to do in order to get ahead in life. Um, why I went to Waynesburg, as I told Waynesburg one year when the Alumni Association called me for an interview, I went to Waynesburg because they were one of the few colleges to admit me. I was not necessarily the best high school student in my day. Public service administration was something I was interested in, and I wasn't sure if I was getting into town or county or state municipal management and planning, but that's what I thought I was drawn to. 
soon after, or I should say during my senior year at Waynesburg, I had to do an internship with the town administrator of my local town. I said to him, I'll see you this summer when I come back. He said, Warren, actually you won't. The town council decided they didn't need my services anymore. And that's when I made a decision that this is a very political job and maybe I should think about something else. So I came home and told my parents I was going to go to Seton Hall and get my uh, master's in, in, in health administration at Seton Hall. And they almost fell off their chairs. Really? But they supported it. Okay. And that's how I ended up making the transition from public administration to hospital administration. Did you go straight from Waynesburg to Seton Hall? I did. Okay. So so straight to straight into graduate studies with a MPA in healthcare admin with a focus in healthcare administration. That is correct. Okay. And you made the circuit back to Children's Specialized Hospital. Yes. Now, as we all know in the life, networking is a very important thing. So during my graduate school days, I was the security officer at Children's Specialized Hospital. I had to do an internship for my for my master's, and I did it at Children's Specialized Hospital. It was supposed to be about an eight-month internship program. I ended up being an intern there for the remainder of my master's program, almost about 15 months, and at which time uh, the CEO of the system called the house and said the board approved a new job, and you're it. So he hired me. Wow. Okay. And tell us a little bit about um, Children's Specialized Hospital. What, what kind of organization was it? So Children's Specialized Hospital had about a 100-year history at the time, and even more so now, obviously. They were a rehab hospital, so they had no surgery, had no emergency room. They would take care of the children who had some trauma happen to them, as I explained earlier. They would be, if you will, first line of defense at an acute care hospital, but once they no longer qualified for acute care stay, they would come to Children's Rehab Hospital for rehabilitation. Some of the kids were able to go home in a very short time frame. I distinctly remember one child who was probably at the hospital for over a year and a half because he was so mental, medically involved that his mother couldn't take him home. And I'll never forget how happy he was when he was here. He was able to go home. Wow. Okay. That's a powerful experience. And so the position that was created for you, what was that? Assistant administrator. So one day I'm at the security desk with my, I hate to say it this way, my clip-on black tie. Okay. The next day, the director of security and another uh, number of other department heads reported to me. Okay. So it was a major transition. Okay. And that in itself took a lot of knowledge and thoughtfulness of how to transition from being an employee to being a boss. Making that transition, so going from being an employee to, to a boss, who coached you through that process? Who, how, did, how did you get, get through it? I've always been an individual who could be self-aware of, of what he's doing and how he's doing it. Okay. And I knew I was dealing with some department heads that used to view me as a security officer sitting on. Yeah. So I had to deal with them in a different way. And I had to learn. Obviously, I couldn't come out of the chute too, uh, if you will, cocky and sure of myself. Yeah. Um, but I had to start positioning myself to be the boss. And it wasn't easy for them to deal with. But I had to do it in a very diplomatic way 
So as I grew more comfortable in my job, I could do my job better, but I had to really step lightly initially. And I knew, knew enough that I couldn't just come in and take over. I really had to lean on them for them to teach me their roles and for me to grow as a professional. The CEO of the hospital was obviously my first mentor because that was my first job, but he was very good at helping me when I had issues and providing me with feedback. So we stayed at Children's Specialized Hospital probably 10 years after that, worked our way up to, I think my final title there was Vice President of Administration. I was essentially number two in charge of the institution, and I knew my boss was not going to be going anywhere. He had a very nice job. We were very well endowed. It was cost-based reimbursement. So I knew I had to find a new role because I knew I wanted to move up to be a CEO at some point in time. So through the last year at Children's Specialized Hospital, I was actively engaged in trying to find a job. Networks would have everything to do in life, as you know, and I hope all of our students know and everybody listening at that point in time, I got a call from Health South. They are a for-profit rehab company that had hospitals in most of the states in the United States. And as luck would have it, the individual who called me, the, the vice president of inpatient care at Health South, happened to go to Waynesburg College. So he saw my CV, and that's how I was able to get the interview and, I think, ultimately the job because was, of that connection. connection. Yes. Wow. Okay. So you did go in 1996 to Arizona to be the administrator and CEO of HealthSouth Meridian Point Rehab- Rehabilitation Hospital. That is correct. And you said it's a for-profit organization. Was Children Specialized a for-profit? No, it was a non-for-profit. So what was the what was the experience like of going for a from a non for profit to a for profit organization? Um, a couple of things I'll, I'll reflect on. First off, I'll reflect on it was night and day. So at Children's Specialized Hospital, not for profit, we were able to do anything we wanted to do for those kids. We had great staffing patterns. We were able. We had we had all sorts of people to help those children through their ADL skills, activities of daily living skills, to get them positioned to be able to perform independently. And we had unlimited resources. We could take them to track and field events for disabled kids. We could take them to Disneyland. We had a ball with these children. When I went to Health South, it was starkly different. Health South is a for-profit organization that really ran their hospital by numbers. And we would get monthly phone calls from corporate about our bottom line, about any cost overruns that we had in in any of our departments. And it was a totally different experience. I will tell you, working for a for-profit organization gives you a different perspective on how to run hospitals, good, bad, or indifferent. And HealthSouth actually, I think, was a better education than either one of my master degrees Okay. Um, for the time I spent on on finance. Efficiency and finance. Yes. Absolutely. But these were both rehab facilities. Correct. One was children's, one was adults. One was for-profit, one was not-for-profit. So it was just night and day. 
And was the night and day portion primarily the not-for-profit? It wasn't the children's versus adult. No. It was primarily. It was all about money. Okay. What was it like making the jump to the CEO role? I mean, you'd been vice president. I think I probably went into it a little bit naive about assuming that I was confident enough to be able to do it. I think I made some mistakes. I think I was able to change the culture in a very positive way because I think culture in organizations are very important. You can see from my career that I haven't been in the for-profit world again. I prefer, if I can avoid it, to not be in the for-profit healthcare world because I think there's some conflict there. So it was tough. It was a tough year. It was a tough growing year. And we only stayed one year there. I found myself at the end of the year worried about the outcomes for our patients and worried if we were doing the right things for our patients. And I wanted to get back into the nonprofit world. Okay. So you did, you did, as you said, you didn't stay that long, and you returned to New Jersey in 1997 to be the Corporate Director of Rehabilitation for St. Barnabas Healthcare System in Livingston, and you were sh- promoted shortly thereafter to the Vice President for Rehabilitation. So St. Barnabas Healthcare System at the time was a newly formed system in the state. They were the second largest employer, uh, second largest healthcare system in the state. They had nine nursing homes, no, nine hospitals, 10 nursing homes, home health agencies, and 22,000 employees. They were building their corporate headquarters so they could start, sorry about the word, systematizing their organization. I came in to first oversee rehab. I guess they saw potential in me because after that we ended up with a product line of neurology. What else did we do? Orthopedic, sports medicine. There was one other one other product line that we just tried to start merging throughout the, the nine hospitals. Okay, and that was a very good experience. Large corporate headquarters. The challenge I found myself is I didn't have a community that I supported like I did when I was in Arizona or like I did when I was in in, in New Jersey at Children's Specialized Hospital, and I didn't know who I was serving. I didn't see the patients anymore. Okay. So it was a great experience, and one day my boss handed me an envelope because he knew I was looking for another opportunity, and it was an opportunity to interview for a job in Vermont. Um, I had never been to Vermont before in my life. I talked to the recruiter. I was immediately shipped up to Vermont to meet with the board. And that interview process went exceptionally well. I ended up with the opportunity. And so that was my first opportunity to be a CEO, a president and CEO of an acute care hospital in a rural environment, which was the ultimate dream that I had for my entire career. Okay. So you might not know me well, but I'm always someone that tries to visualize where I want to be in the future. And my vision was to live in a small rural community. Despite the fact I have many, many years of of rehab experience, I wanted to be able to make the leap from a rehab career and get into acute care. So St. Barnabas helped me do that. And the commitment that we were able to get at Copley allowed me to, to fulfill my dream. My other dream, quite frankly, was to live in a very rural area and I, I could visualize myself, and I didn't know how I'd get there, but I knew if I was able to get into acute care, I knew that many, many communities in this country have small rural hospitals, and I, I could fulfill my personal 
my personal ambitions about living in a small community, but also my professional ambitions about working in a small community in, in an acute care facility. So it is really important for any new careers or anybody getting out of, of college to really visualize where you see yourself in 10 or 20 years. And I don't just mean professionally, I mean personally. And then mentally put together a roadmap about how to get there. And you will never get there through straight line. There will always be uh, zigzags. But if you always set your mind to that ultimate goal, you can, you can achieve it. So you were saying St. Barnabas was not a rehab system. It was a acute was care acute. system that had rehab. That is correct. That let you in with your rehab experience. And then I was able to take advantage. They saw what I could do in rehab, so they gave me all these other service lines. And I was able to parlay my resume, build my resume, so it looked like I had a lot more acute care experience, which I did, and I was able to make the leap into the leadership of an acute care facility. So what was the draw to you personally of living in a rural uh, community? You know, it's, pretty, it's funny you should ask because I lived in suburbia, USA, my entire childhood, you know, where you could yell across the driveway at your neighbor, ride your bike to school. I spent all my summers on my grandparents' farm in the middle of Kentucky, and I just loved what they had. Okay. So you left St. Barnabas after about three years to become president of Copley Hospital in Morrisville, Vermont, in 1999. Copley Hospital is part of the Copley Health Systems. And after two years, you became president and CEO of the health system as well. So we kind of talked about what drove you to come come up here was was personal interests and, and ultimately that interest in, in being a CEO. So here you are once again in the CEO role. What lessons did you bring with you from your time in Arizona as a CEO, taking on this new CEO role? Different kind of organization, back to nonprofit. Absolutely. I think the most important lessons that I've learned, both at Children's Specialized Hospital, at HealthSouth, and at St. Barnabas, is transparency, honesty, being a person of my word, and always following up when you make a commitment. The other thing I think is really important is having a really strong knowledge base about how important the culture is among the team and or among your institution as you try to move initiatives forward. And you can only do that through building relationships, following up, making sure you're transparent, making sure you're honest so people believe in you. And if they believe in you, they're going to follow you. So those are really the, the lessons I learned through my career to help me be successful at Copley. Okay. We walked into some real challenges at Copley. First challenge was I was only the hospital president, and the CEO who was there stayed in her seat for another year running the system. And that was a challenge because the hospital was the biggest entity of the system. There was another number of other entities within the system, including a retirement community, a nursing home, a HUD-assisted living facility, a foundation, a lifeline entity. And I believe there was actually 11 boards when I became the CEO of the system. 11 boards? One, within, the orga- within this one organization, Copley okay. Health System. Okay. 11 boards associated with a 25-bed critical access hospital. I just found that 
to be an interesting way to build a system. The biggest challenges when I got into the CEO job was our nursing home was bleeding financially. We probably didn't in the past have financed it properly. The retirement community didn't sell as, as many places as they needed to, so they were losing money. And the hospital found itself funding these other entities and was unable to invest in itself because all of the returns were going into these other properties. So we were able to shrink 11 boards. We were able to turn around the nursing home. Quite frankly, we ended up having to give it back to the bondholders. They had to take a major haircut. We didn't claim bankruptcy, but the bondholders ended up taking a haircut so this thing could float on its own. We were able to reinvigorate the retirement community and sell it out. And the system really was very strong financially once we made some of those changes. So the nursing home was was separated from, from Copley? It spun out. Spun out. It is still there as a resource in the community, okay. um, which is a great thing. It just it took some time to get to where we needed it to be. Okay. You transitioned Copley to a critical access hospital status. Why is that important, and what had to happen to accomplish that? That was some really delicate negotiations among our providers. People had a false impression of what critical access status was. I saw the advantages of being converting to a critical access hospital was to be able to get cost-based reimbursement as opposed to prospective payment, and that would help us financially dramatically. The difficulty was our physicians, it wasn't our census really, it was our perception of what critical access hospitals were. And I had to very carefully help our physicians understand, no, critical access hospitals are not band-aid stations. We can continue to do everything we're doing today, but we're going to get a different reimbursement mechanism and it'll help us survive tomorrow. And we were able to get that through our medical staff. The community had no issue with it um, and we were able to do that successfully. What are the key elements to, for a hospital to be critical access? The simplest way I can explain it is you have to keep your census below 25. Okay. Period. You can build outpatient as large as you want it, but the only real quite well, there's two criteria. Census at 25 and an average length of stay at 96 hours. And if you achieve those two things, you can maintain your critical access status. And you can have as big an outpatient operation as you want. Hence, if you looked around at Littleton today, we are a typical critical access hospital because of all the specialists we have. And 90% of our business is outpatient. And, you know, I tell people we're at, at Littleton, we're a, a nice-sized physician practice with a couple of hospital beds attached. One of the other things you accomplished while you were at Copley was achievement of federally qualified health clinic lookalike status. And this was actually something I'm not familiar with, so I had to look it up after I saw it. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about what is lookalike status and why was that important? Certainly. So at at, at Littleton Regional Healthcare, sorry, at Copley, we did have a pretty big um, contingent of employed physicians, including primary care. And as most hospitals, we were losing money on our uh, physician practices as a standalone, but obviously they support all the rest of the activities and missions of the community. The federal government has a program, which is called FQHCs, 
And if you are an FQHC, you get paid more per visit than if you're a standalone physician practice, and you have the ability to access annual grants to help support your program. Once we learned that we could enhance our revenue stream and provide better services to our community, we actively pursued FQHD status. There are two steps to that endeavor. First, you have to get lookalike status, and then more than likely in a year to two years from then, you will be granted full FQHC status. And actually, right before my last day at Copley, we learned that we had gotten full FQHC status. Okay, okay. so you did become. Yes. Okay. So that was somewhat controversial for our docs because they were no longer employees of the hospital. I think it definitely dampened the dark doc's perspective of what I was doing because they were worried about their future. But if I look back at that community now, they have even more robust primary care. They have dental services. They have behavioral health services. That FQHC now is a major fixture in the town, and I am very proud of that tough decision that we made back in the mid-'90s. You, you called it a tough decision. What, what were some of the costs of doing that? I thought there was some costs for me as a CEO okay. because the doctors were very mad at the time because they thought, well, basically, they were leaving the house they knew for a new house, and it scared them. Okay. And I lost some really big political capital by doing that. So they became employees of the FQHC. Now, I don't think they lost any benefits, but it was just different for them. Right. And I think I lost some political capital. So it looks like you left Copley for a brief stint in consulting and then came to Littleton Regional Healthcare here in Littleton, New Hampshire, uh, to become CEO in 2007. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay. So I previously interviewed Rob Mock, who was, uh, until recently, your executive director for operations here at Littleton. But for folks who haven't had a chance to listen to Rob's interview, can you briefly describe Littleton Regional Healthcare? Um, sure. So Littleton Regional Healthcare um, is a critical access hospital, atypical of most critical access hospitals, with gross revenues of about $85 million dollars. So we're much bigger than most critical access hospitals. We have, over the course of the 10 years that I've been here, been able to grow our primary care base and very successfully grow our specialty base. We probably have more specialists at Littleton than any other critical access hospital in the state. In fact, we are the largest critical access hospital in the state. We are very fortunate because of our location we are also very fortunate because of our physical plant. The hospital, prior to my arrival, built a brand new facility in 2000, well, finished a brand new facility in 2001. So we have a beautiful physical plant. I was fortunate to walk into a very financially stable institution whose plan was to continue to grow. And I took advantage of our financial resources, our location, and our building, and really built a high-quality uh, medical facility here at Littleton over those 10 years. So what kind of things have you added on in, in that? In so that? we've added on probably 120,000 square feet of a medical office building. We have, I think when I first got here, we employed 10 doctors. 
Now we employ 50. We, we grew from about $40 million to about $85 million, so we doubled the size of the organization financially. We have gotten some unbelievable awards. We've been recognized by LeapFrog. We have been recognized by Vantage. We have been recognized by CMS. And most recently, we have gotten a five-star rating from CMS. Which is a very great achievement for this organization. One of the most proud things I have recollection of at Littleton is our employee engagement results about two years ago were the highest Avatar had ever seen in many categories. So through our work with Studer, we were able to really help our staff feel very connected here and really engage with each other and more importantly engage with our patients, which helped us, of course, to win all those patient satisfaction awards. Do you have other organizations as part of Littleton, sort of the way Copley was? Do you have a nursing home or anything like that associated with the organization? We don't. Okay. Littleton is is a freestanding, was a freestanding independent hospital. More recently, as of April, 2016, the Attorney General approved a four-hospital merger affiliation in the North Country. So now Littleton is part of North Country Healthcare, which is a parent organization over Littleton, Weeks Medical Center, AVH, and Upper Connecticut. And I want to come to that in, in just a second, but I want to stay with uh, Littleton for, for another couple of minutes. How is Littleton different from Morrisville? And how do those, how does that geography affect the organization? <laughs> geography and demographics. Yep. And I don't want to get too political, but the state of New Hampshire is 180 degrees different than the state of Vermont. Okay. Politically. And how you can run a hospital. There are far more rules in Vermont which controls what hospitals do than here in New Hampshire. So we were able to accomplish a lot of things on our own, not requiring a certificate of need. So the entire medical office building put up a wood chip boiler plant. We invested in a new IT platform. All these things would have been controlled and regulated in Vermont. And here we, well, we bought a new CAT scan. We bought a new MRI. All these things would have been controlled and regulated in Vermont. But in New Hampshire, we were able to do them. When you think about the communities, I think Morrisville itself, with the surrounding town of Stowe, is pretty close, if you will, in demographics to, to that of um, Littleton and Franconia and Sugar Hill. But when you get outside of those two towns and you look at the general service area, I think it is a little different. I think it's a little more challenging in northern New Hampshire. As I think most people would know, based on the indicators that are published, our population in Coas County are the sickest in the state, are the most economically challenged, are the least educated, and are the oldest. So we have a population that we have to serve in this new mode of population health 
that are in the basement of all indicators, and we've got to figure out how to get them out of the basement. I don't think we had that same challenge over in Morrisville. I think when I think about the teams and the workforce, I see them as very similar. I see them as teams that were able to accept and understand what I needed to accomplish as a CEO, help me change the culture in both of those organizations to be focused on patient satisfaction and patient experience, as well as really engaged employees. And if you get a combination of a great culture, great leadership, a vision to move forward, you can achieve just about anything. So I see them as very similar, and we had some great successes at both institutions. You mentioned certificate of need a minute ago, and you said Vermont had a much more extensive certificate of need system. Now, my understanding is New Hampshire had a certificate it's of gone. need. It's gone. Recently, relatively recently, within yes. the past year. Yes. So, but, but you were referencing, so maybe could you explain what a certificate of need is for folks who are not familiar with the concept? Sure. And how is it different in New Hampshire from Vermont? In, in the sense that New Hampshire did have a certificate of need program now now sunsetted. Correct. So a certificate of need, and, and each state has the ability to choose how they want to regulate if they want to regulate health care. There are some states in the country who do not have certificate of need. And certificate of need is a process that states employ in order to, for lack of a better word, control the growth and expansion of healthcare services in their state. So in the state of New Hampshire, when they had a certificate of need, which recently sunsetted, they would control, if, if you didn't have so many, and I'll give you a couple of examples. So MRI, you couldn't get a fixed MRI unless you had a certain number of procedures that you did on an annual basis, and you had to prove you had to do it for a certain amount of years. You couldn't just go out and buy things like that. You can't add on to your hospital except medical office buildings in the state of New Hampshire without a certificate of need. So we actually had to get a certificate of needs for some of the expansion within the hospital, but we didn't need it for the medical office building. Now, in Vermont, they regulate everything. So medical office buildings regulated, buying a new IT system's regulated, buying any kind of expensive, there's a dollar threshold, but any kind of expensive medical equipment, whether it's a CAT scan, an MRI, new surgical booms, all had to get approval, and they still have to get approval. So it's just much more regulated. And like I said, it's the way for states to try to control expansion of medical services, because it's a belief that in some states, that the more medical services are out there, the more they'll use, and it'll be more expensive for the Medicaid population, which the state has a responsibility of paying partial payments for those services. Okay. So it is nominally, at least, an effort to control overall spending on That is correct. Okay. Briefly, what was what's the process like, for example, to and who is giving the approval? Who's involved in the approval process for either in Vermont or New Hampshire? So in 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 both states, they have a board. That board is probably selected differently in both states. The board now in Vermont is the Green Mountain Care Board, and those board members are selected by the governor. The board here was called the board in New Hampshire was called the um, Certificate of Need Board, and that. A, was those members were approved by the governor as well. The process in the state of New Hampshire 
to me, was a very legitimate process, and it didn't feel like anybody was putting up barriers for your hospital to be successful. In Vermont, there was just much more pushback, and you didn't feel the same excitement about growth than you did here. So here we were able to, we, we would put a presentation together. We would go down and present in front of the board, show them what we're doing, show them we, that we could afford it, and prove to them based on volume we needed it, and they would approve it. But in Vermont, it's just much more difficult and much more controlled. So coming back to the organization um, and your experience, I'm curious about your experience coming in as a senior leader. And maybe what did, what did you learn about that process? So you've now done it three times. You came in as a CEO in three different organizations. What's that process like as you kind of enter at the top and try to integrate yourself, understand the culture, and then begin to align the, I mean, you're brought in as a CEO to provide that leadership. So how do, how do you then try to align yourself with the organization and then make the organization align to you? Yeah. Um, and that's a delicate dance. And, I have a philosophy when I come into a new organization that what I have learned in the past and what I've done at other organizations may have been successful at other organizations, but in order for me to succeed at a new organization, I need to understand that organization first. So, you know, when folks ask me, what am I going to do for the first year or what am I going to do for the first 90 days? My answer is very simple. I am going to listen and I am going to learn about the people, about the culture, about the history, about our doctors, about our patients, and about our community before I start making mass assumptions about how to do things at that organization. Every organization is different. Every organization is on its own journey. And every organization has a different culture. And you need to take time to understand that before you start making serious decisions about moving this organization forward. So first 90 days, basically, listen, learn. Listen, learn. I always make it a habit of interviewing with every board member during those first 90 days, spending an hour and a half with them, getting to know them. I do that same thing for our medical leaders. I can't get to all the medical staff in those 90 days. I make it a habit of cruising around the hospital so people know me. And that's a routine I do every day of my job is I will be out in that hospital first thing in the morning and usually sometime in the afternoon. You cannot, in my opinion, you cannot be a successful a leader in a hospital if you are not visible and that if you don't know people's names and if you don't know what they do, they need to know you to be able to trust you. And you can't do that by staying in your office. What were the unique challenges that you felt you had to address as you came into Littleton? You said it was better off. It was, it had, it was financially stable. So it sounds like it was a, in a pretty good position. We were. The challenges I had to address is right off the bat, we had to develop a strategic plan because it was not completed. So we had to start working with the board and the medical leaders on a strategic plan. The plan they did have talked a lot about they must have had some challenges before I got there regarding medical staff and administrative relationships. So 
I needed to learn about what happened and I needed to make sure we healed those relationships. We also were in dire need of an information system because everybody was starting to transition to new electronic medical records. And we had run out of space, despite the fact we had just bought a, a, built a new hospital in 2001. When I arrived in 2007, they were in desperate need of space. We had folks down in downtown Littleton still, and we weren't on, on, on the same campus. The other challenge we had is we had some cultural challenges. There were some real challenges around employment in, uh, employee engagement. There were some labor relation challenges we had. And we had some legal attacks based on disgruntled employees that we had to deal with. So our hands were quite busy early on in our first couple of years. Um, we talked earlier about the new medical office building that's up. We did get a new IT system installed, both for our outpatients and our inpatients. We were able to work through all of the labor relation issues and the legal challenges. And after we got through all of those issues... Our next goal was to take on how we could be the provider of choice in the region, the employer of choice in the region, and really attack in a positive way employee engagement and patient experience. And that helped facilitate the market share gains that we made over the course of the next five years. So what were... What were some of the strategies you used to really work on employee engagement and to improve patient experience? I mean, you're hearing patient experience is kind of one of the big buzzwords now. What, 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 what did you do that, that so really helped you to achieve that? We developed a homegrown educational experience that we rolled out for all of our employees and all of our volunteers. And quite frankly, it was a four-hour story initially, and then we built from there on who we are and what we need to be and how we need to take care of our employees and our patients in a different way so we can be the provider of choice in the region. And the story must have been so compelling that everybody got behind it. And when we presented it to our, our, our volunteers, because we have a small, vol a small army of volunteers, 240 of them, that's almost half the FTEs we have. We have volunteers, oh, volunteers. here. Wow. And that's because we built a positive culture, right? They want to be here. We treat them like family. That story was so compelling that we sprung board that story into a relationship with Studer, and we instituted the Studer principles here for the next two to three years, and that's when our awards started coming, about patient experience awards, our safety quality award out of, out of LeapFrog, and as I said, the most recent five-star rating from CMS. So people just rallied around, we want to be the best. Yeah. And we were able to build a culture of people thinking we are the best. And as soon as they start thinking that, they are the best. And our patients know it and they feel it when they walk in this building. We taught them how to engage a visitor. We taught them how to engage patients. We taught them how to engage each other. I mean, it was a major transform transformational activity here. And it paid off. Just for a second, can we talk a little bit about finance and growth? You built a, a, you built a large addition. How, how, does, how does Littleton go about getting the capital to do that? That was actually relatively creative. So when I got here, 
we had some old bonds and we were paying a minor fortune in interest rate. So I got here in March, I think in November 2007, right before, if you think about it, the Great Recession, we refinanced the hospital and forward funded $10 million to be able to put up our medical office building. But our principal and interest, because the interest rate was so much lower, was the same. So I actually had $10 million sitting in a bank waiting to invest it in this medical office building we were about to put up and had no more monthly expenses associated with it. You're the leader of probably the largest nonprofit in the immediate area. That is correct. What does that mean to you as a member of the community? It is a great sense of pride, but it is also a great burden of responsibility. And I don't mean to use the word burden in a negative way, but it is a great responsibility. You have, I view every one of our employees as family members. We have to treat them with respect. We want to be the employer of choice. And we have to make sure, as I tell people at every orientation, my job is to make sure all of you can do your job successfully, not vice versa. So I am here to support you guys and make sure the environment is right so you can take care of our patients. And it is, it is a huge responsibility, but it is a great sense of pride. How does your role and how does the hospital um, interact with the rest of the business community in, in the area? We are very concerned about affordability of health insurance. So we do try to reach out and be real creative with our large employers about how we can engage with them, how we can help them keep their insurance rates lower, how we need to be cognizant to keep our rate increases low so they don't have to continue to pay more and more money for their premiums. So we do have a working relationship with some of the large employers because of that. My door as a leader of this institution is always open to anybody that wants to meet with me. And they do take advantage of that, and I go out to see them. We are a major pillar in this community, and as such, we do engage with a lot of the large businesses and business owners, and we're available and accessible and out there at community events, at chamber events, at rotary events. We just want them to know that we're part of the the fabric of this community. So speaking of community, and you mentioned earlier about community health and population health, what is the role of Littleton um, in promoting population health? And and what should the role of a hospital be at a care hospital? So as I mentioned earlier, Littleton itself, because it's a small community hospital, has has somewhat of a difficult time taking on the concept of population health. But our strategy was one to combine forces with the hospitals in the North Country so we'd be in a better position through size and scale to take on population health. So we have actually done a couple of things. We formed the parent organization over those four hospitals. But more importantly, we have partnered with the four hospitals in the North Country and the three federally qualified health clinics in the North Country, which are independent, nonprofit organizations, to form a new 
LLC, Limited Liability Corporation, to be able to take on risk-based contracting from commercial carriers and take on population health in the North Country. And if you were to think about the state of New Hampshire, we are the top third geographically of the state. And because we have the four hospitals and all the providers associated with the hospitals and the three FQHCs and all the providers associated with the FQHCs, we have about 97%, if not 99%, of all providers in our new CCO. So we can really attack the health indicators in the North Country and get our population healthier than they've ever been before. Okay. Well, so let's let's now talk about North Country Healthcare. So in 2016, in July of 2016, you became the CEO of the newly formed North Country Healthcare. What is North Country Healthcare? You've, you've said it's a it's an affiliation of four hospitals. <laughs> it's an affiliation of four hospitals: Weeks Medical Center out of Lancaster, AVH out of Berlin, Upper Connecticut, Upper Connecticut Hospital in Colebrook, and then Littleton Regional Healthcare in Littleton. We also have a nonprofit home health agency called North Country Home Health Agency. And that is a merger of two home health agencies that were private freestanding health home health agencies that are now under the umbrella of North Country. In addition to that, we have formulated this limited liability company with the RFQHC friends, probably the first in the nation where critical access hospitals and FQHCs have come together in a joint venture to take on population health. We also believe we're the first in the nation where four critical access hospitals came together without a larger tertiary care facility on their own to get size and scale and to really, we believe, we can, we can reinvent ourselves in the North Country and take care of our own challenges without associating right now with a larger facility. But most of the mergers in the country right now have large hospitals taking over critical access hospitals. We were able to avoid that. Our new entity, we have 1,400 employees. We are probably right now either the fifth or sixth largest healthcare system in the state. And we are, bar none, the largest employer in the North Country. You mentioned scale, size and scale. So what is the benefit of an affiliation in terms of the economics? It's everything. And I shouldn't say it that way that easily, but it is everything. So it's the fact that we can go to the market for anything we need to go to the market for, and we have larger scale, larger ability to negotiate. We saved probably $350,000 by going out to the market for our malpractice and all the rest of insurances we need together. Day to day, we look at when somebody leaves the institu- one of the institutions, we're not filling those positions. We're, in fact, putting a system role in to- on top of it so we can start centralizing and standardizing various operations. We have a little more leverage with our friends with the insurance companies. We can say to them, please don't hit us really hard today. We can't afford too many more rate increases, but we are coming together. We are building the CCO. We will be ready to take on risk-based contracting in about three years. Please give us a good, safe glide path so we can get our cost structure down until that time. We may have duplications of, of physicians. We can't be all things, all people anymore. So when physicians decide to leave our communities, we may be able to backfill them with capacity we have at other hospitals. So there's just a variety of ways for us to drive costs out of the system, to improve access, and improve quality. Just last night, we had our first all-provider 
meeting. We had over 100 doctors in the audience, and we started talking to them, quite frankly, about building a clinically integrated network so we could go to the insurance companies and start getting paid for high-quality, low-cost operations. So these are the things that we can do with the system now that we couldn't do as individuals. You've mentioned risk-based contracting a couple times. What is that? As we all hopefully have been studying and reading what's going on in reimbursement worlds for hospitals, most hospitals in the country now should be or are participating in an accountable care organization. Eventually, the insurance companies and the federal government are going to no longer have upside-only risk i.e. if you have bent the curve of expenditures from last year to the the next year, you get some savings and you can recoup 50% of that savings. But eventually, you're going to have to take two-way risk and own. I think it's going to go to the world of capitation, but you're going to own your own activities and you're no longer going to get paid for things that you've done wrong. So you've got to do them right, or you're going to be losing money on the risk side of the curve, not gaining money. So quite frankly, if you make mistakes, you're going to beat with a stick and lose revenue. If you do the right thing, you're going to get a carrot, and you're going to get paid better. And the only way we're going to survive is if we get all those carrots. Okay. Collecting the carrots. Great. How, uh, how are you involved in the founding of the organization? I mean, whose idea was this? How did, how, tell, tell the story of how this all um, came about. So my three peers north of, of, of Littleton, who, quite frankly, in my 10 years here, I competed fiercely with them because my job was to make Littleton succeed when I was the CEO of Littleton. They had formed a coalition to try to keep those three hospitals financially successful. I think they realized they couldn't do it on their own. And they approached Littleton to say, would you like to join us? So for the next two years, we had the opportunity to try to convince our boards collectively that we should all come together to work collectively in developing an affiliation agreement and to design what this thing would look like and how it would legally function. I must admit to you that I didn't think it was the right answer until about two months before I had to get my board to vote. Because Littleton was so financially strong, was so independent, was dominant player in the market. I'm not sure we had to do that. But with the change of payments that's coming and with a whole lot of a population health, everything else, I think is the absolute right decision for Littleton. What were the challenges of getting the organization started? I know you had to go through legal challenges. Well, we had legal challenges. We had ego challenges. You know, all CEOs have a little bit of ego. We had board challenges who didn't like each other. As I said, we were the big beast in the North Country, and they didn't trust us because, you know, Warren West, when he gets paid to do a job, that's what he does. And his job at that time was to build Littleton Regional Healthcare, yeah. bar nothing. Right. And that's what we did. But now Warren West gets paid to form a new system and make sure we take care of all of the population in the North Country. And that's my job. So there was challenges everywhere. And every month when I was going to my board, they were pushing back and saying, why is this the right thing? I was bringing in outside consultants. We just made it happen. But it was two years of really hard work. Who do you see now, or or who were the major stakeholders that you had to get to buy into it? 
four boards and four medical staffs. Okay. Really. And that's what it came down to. And that was a lot of communication. That was dispelling a lot of false assumptions about Littleton because, you know, we were the big bear. You were, okay. All right. It was a fear, like, you're just going to try to take over. Everything's going to be Littleton-centric. Right, right, right. And I can't do that, right? right. And I, to the chagrin of many of some great employees here at Littleton, my answer is, I can't have you do that because I can't be Littleton-centric. And it is a real tough balance. But you also still wear the hat of CEO of Littleton as well. No, I do not. Okay. So as of three weeks ago, a man named Robert Nutter, who came from Maine, assumed my position here at Littleton. So your role now is... Is purely, purely the CEO of... System level CEO. That is correct. Okay. We have hired four brand new presidents at each of the hospitals who have the day-to-day operational responsibilities of each of those hospitals, but they also have the responsibility to build our system. So they have a dual responsibility. Those presidents report to me as well as their boards. And I and Russ Keen, my partner, who is the president and CFO of the system, sit on each of the boards and help facilitate the development of the system. So there are still boards at each facility. That is correct. And then there's a system level board. That is correct. What's the inter- what's the relationship and interaction between the, the five um, boards then? What's the there are, yeah. So how we design the system is, is board members from each of the hospitals are representatives on the parent board. And depending upon how large of an institution you are, you have more representation on that parent board. So the Littleton board probably, I think, has seven seats. AVH has five. The other two institutions have two. And those board members all go back to their hospitals to relay information, and they sit on those boards. And Russ and I sit on those boards, so we can bring communications back and forth. Because you're on all five? Yes. Okay. Yes. And so it's actually working very well. We have a great communication stream. We have very enthusiastic board members, both on the hospital level and on the system level. And we just recently rolled out our strategic initiatives, and it was unanimously adopted by everybody. And everybody embraced the concept of standardization, centralization, and streamlining our services. So where do you draw the lines between responsibilities of the respective boards? What is the system? What is kind of a classic example, if you will, or or a demonstration example of this is what we'll deal with at the system level and these are the things that perfect are at the... So day-to-day responsibilities still reside at each of the hospital's So they have their operational budget, they have their capital budget, which they need to maintain. The system, Russ and I, make sure they're hitting their budget and make sure they're not overspending their capital. So we have some day-to-day responsibilities down here. Our system board, so each of the hospitals have day-to-day responsibility to run their hospitals. Our system board's job is to help sure the integration and development of this parent organization is moving swiftly enough and successfully enough and that our strategic plan is right and that we're moving our tactics forward. So they oversee how we're building the system and these guys really oversee the day-to-day responsibilities. What's your what's your interaction with the presidents? Um, I meet with the presidents once a week. I travel to each of the hospitals once a week. 
I talked to them about their work plans. I talked to them about their challenges. Every one of our presidents had never been in charge of a hospital before. They were all up, up and comers. So my role is to help mentor and guide them. And quite frankly, I tell them every day, my job is to make sure you're successful. So you take advantage of my knowledge. You take advantage of what you need from me. And um, so that's sort of how I work with them. So they report directly to me as well as their boards. The CFOs at each of the hospitals report to Russ as well as the hospital presidents. So there's a lot of interface and a lot of, and there's some matrix management and organizational structure because of how we're trying to build the system. I'm trying to keep all the costs down in the hospitals. And we're identifying people who might have system roles, but they're going to stay in their hospital and still have a system role. Um, And that's been working quite successfully. Where are you looking for the ability to streamline in terms of of, uh, staff? Everywhere. Everywhere. Okay. And I hate to say that. So you have a system level. So where, I guess my question is, where are you going to have kind of use the system so that like there's only this kind of support coming from over here? Um, So let me give you some, some, some for instances. We recently had a lab director at Littleton actually resign. We took that opportunity to advertise for a system job. We only offered it internally. So one of the two lab directors who were remaining applied for the system job. We're doing that exact same operation in in pharmacy because that has changed. So as opportunities open up, we're creating a system role. But we're keeping those system roles in the hospitals. I really don't want to put a whole lot of big, expensive infrastructure up at the system. Okay. You, You used the acronym CCO. Yes. What is a CC? It's our language okay. for what the agent, what the LLC is going to be called um, when we bring the FQHCs and the hospitals together for risk-based contracting. It, we call it a community care organization. Okay. Because really, it is all about population health and how we're going to care for our community. Okay. Um, so that's your acronym. That's our that, acronym. Not, I, yeah. I heard it. I'm like, that's an interesting acronym. No, that I is, know that one. That is ours. Okay. Are you going to officially be an ACO? It is going to be an ACO okay. for but commercial berries. Correct. Okay. We're actually involved in an ACO right now. Okay. We meaning all the whole system? Yes. Actually, we're in the AIM ACO initiative. We're one year into it, two more years to go. It is a forward-funded, upside-only, shared savings initiative after three years. We're in it with the four hospitals in the North Country, the three FQHCs, Cottage, which is in Woodsville, is in it. And actually, because their criteria was you needed more than 10,000 covered lives to be part of it, we were asked if if Monadnock Hospital down in Peterborough could join as well because we had to get to 10,000 covered lives because that was the minimum threshold. So it's actually six hospitals and three FQHCs in this ACO. Okay. And the goal for this ACO, quite frankly, is for us to learn from the federal government how to take on risk-based contracting so in three years from now, when the insurance companies ask us to do that, we know what we're doing. Okay. That's a story I've heard from a number of different organizations that are early in that process. Yeah. This is a learning experience. We're not expecting to make money no. off of it at this point. It's all about learning and getting prepared for the future. And you talked about promoting public health, promoting population health at the system level. What's your vision there? How, how are you going to go about doing that? I don't know if I have a good vision. Okay. I've got to be honest with you. Yeah. 
What I do know is, as I explained to you earlier, we have a population that is the sickest in the state. And there's a whole lot of factors involved in that, whether it's economic factors, lifestyle factors, social factors, healthcare factors, uh, food and nutrition factors, affordability. But we also know in population health, healthcare systems are responsible for all these things, whether it's in their ballywick or not. So one of our strategic goals is to partner with every other partner we can in the North Country to figure out how we can get improved health status for all the population. So we've got to partner with the churches. We've got to partner with behavioral health. We've got to partner with the nursing homes. We've got to partner with every continuum of care organization out there. We've got to figure out how we can get them healthier lifestyle, healthier nutrition. We've got to get them to the doctor more frequently. It's an overwhelming thought, but it's what we have to do. And it's why the system has come together. You're a fellow of the American College of Healthcare Executives. When did you join ACHE, and how has that been important to your career? Shifting gears here a little bit. Yeah, that's a great question. When I got, I think it was actually when I was doing my internship at Children's Specialized Hospital, my mentor at the time, the president of that organization, just said, Warren, I think you should join this organization. And I have been with the organization ever since, and I achieved up through fellowship, and I think it is a great organization for career healthcare executives. I think they provide some great learning. I think they provide the fellowship status, which helps folks achieve, understand the profession better and helps folks achieve um, that recognition. I'm actually looking forward to the Congress this year. I haven't gone in many years, but we are going to be presenting at the Congress this year the work we're doing at North Country Healthcare. How exciting. And how we're taking on population health. So I will actually have two sessions that we'll be teaching out there. And that's stuff I love to do. I've probably been now five to six times throughout the country in the last year talking about the work we're doing here. Utah, Alaska, Chicago, Tennessee, Florida. A lot of folks are interested who work in small rural hospitals, the work we're doing and how we're getting it done. Let's transition and talk a little bit about leadership, if you don't mind. What would you say is your leadership philosophy? I have a very simple concept, and I tell every new employee, if you ever wonder why Warren sent this memo out and what the heck was he thinking, here's what I'm thinking. And it's really simple. There's three pieces to it. First piece is, as I said to you earlier, My first philosophy is I am here to make sure everybody is able to get their jobs done. So we have to take care of the team. We have to make sure the team has the resources and the environment to do the right thing. And if we take care of the team, the team will take care of the third concept, uh, the second concept. And the second concept is making sure our patients have a great patient experience. So if you take care of the people and the people take care of the patients, You never have to worry about the third worry, which is financial viability, because the patients are going to be so happy, they'll tell the world how great this place is, and you never have to worry about financial viability. So it's just a simple little circle. Take care of the team, they take care of the people, 
and financial viability takes care of itself. That is my simple management philosophy. What are the characteristics and behaviors of a good leader, and how do you aspire to those yourself? First thing is, as I mentioned earlier, visibility. You can't be a carpet administrator. And I hate to use that phrase, but my HealthSouth mentor said that to me one day, and I didn't have a clue what he was talking about. He said to me, you see this office? This office has carpet. There's not carpet out there on the patient floors. You need to get out of your office and get out to the patient floors to see what's going on. So you got to be visible. you got to walk around your institution. When you do that, you have to engage. You can't just walk around. you got to engage with your staff so they know who you are and what you stand for. And you know them, more importantly. I can't tell you the importance of being able to call Johnny, Johnny. You need to know your staff's names. They need to know you're trustworthy, you're honest, you follow up. And what you say is what you mean. And you always speak the truth, no matter how hard it is. And you can be successful. Who would you say you've learned that from? My first mentor was really good at Children's Specialized Hospital. Yeah. And he helped me learn that. I also learned that the hard way. I got a ton of bullet holes in my back from not doing the job the right way. Yeah. But you learn these things through, through the years. Can you give an example of, of uh, maybe one of those bullet holes? So I usually ask folks, can you tell me, a, tell me a, you know, an example of, of a lesson you did, in fact, learn the hard way? Yeah, uh, probably at Copley. I, I was a very confident, very forceful, very determined CEO. And I probably squeezed a couple of lemons that probably didn't need to be squeezed at the time around physician quality and around peer review. And uh, I got shot. Yeah. And I learned a lesson. And it's a very important lesson. Don't squeeze every lemon at once. Wait for them to get ripe. Not everything's a crisis. And you got it. The real trick is what needs to be squeezed and what doesn't. And I'm sorry to use metaphors, no, but great. it's how I think about things. So it's prioritizing. Yes. There's lots of things can be fixed. Right. You have to prioritize and you have to know when it's politically right to squeeze that lemon. You have to set the battle stages, if you will, before you can squeeze the lemon. So you can, if you squeeze it, you're going to have the right outcome. The other philosophy I have is as CEOs, you get a bowl of chips when you start the job. Those chips never get put back in the bowl. But at some point in your career, that bowl is empty, and it is time for you to move on. Okay, so so you actually think there's, there's kind of a time limit. It's not a specified time limit. No, there is absolutely a time limit. Yeah. I have many friends and many colleagues who stay for many, many years. I tend to think it's about a 10 to 15-year range. Longer than that, I just don't think it's right. And I also think you run out of chips, it's time for you to go. And if you don't realize it, they will realize it. Yeah. What do you look for when you're hiring leaders and also evaluating them? I look for folks who want to push me to be more successful, want to push my philosophies, and want to challenge my thinking. Because I am not always right, and I will never admit to being always right, because I'm not. And I'm not the smartest tool in the tool shed either. I want people who are smarter than me. 
I want people who are self-aware to understand how their presence and their actions are being received. And I want people who can connect the dots. Understanding you pull a lever over here, there's five dots or six dots back over here that it's going to affect. And are you sure you want to pull that lever today? A lot of people just pull levers and they don't understand there's a cause and effect to everything they do. And those are the folks I want to hire. I want to hire the enthusiastic folks that say, I want your job in five years. Teach me. Yeah, okay. And those are the folks I want to hire. And is, is the teach me part important? I enjoy that part. Okay. So, so you like that? If I absolutely. Says, I want to learn. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. I love that. Yeah. I will spend as much time with anybody with any question they have about their job so I can help them understand. I'm not going to make their decisions for them. I'm going to give them the pros and cons. I'm going to tell them about my old lessons. I'm going to tell them about the bullet wounds that I have. But I'm going to let them make the decision. Okay. That brings me to kind of questions about mentorship. So uh, as I said, when you came to speak uh, down at UNH, um, you'd been identified in two of my previous interviews by uh, both Peter Wright and Rob Marcus, having been a mentor to them. Uh, Peter's now the CEO of Valley Regional Hospital in Claremont, and Rob Mock has also moved on to be CEO, but I'm, I'm afraid I don't remember the name of the organization off the top of my head. So you've, uh, uh, that I'm aware of, you've spun off at least two CEOs. Three. Three. So there's three? Okay. So that's a pretty good track record. It is. Very proud of that. Yeah. What does it mean to be a mentor? I think, I know, for me, it's a sense of pride that I have a knowledge and, almost as important, a personal relationship with somebody who trusts me and I trust them. And we can talk about anything they want to talk about or I want to talk about to help them continue to grow and develop. Um, You know, I inherited... Mr. Mack, because he was here when I came here. I recruited Mr. Wright, and he clearly told me the day of the interview that he wanted my job. And I'm not afraid of that. Right. I encourage that. And anybody that wants to put up with me, as long as those two gentlemen put up with me, they deserve to have moved on and successfully graduated. I'm not the easiest, and I'm not the hardest. But I can be very critical of my mentors, the people I mentee, if you will, because I want them to learn and I want them to learn the hard way because sometimes that's the best way. So I will let them fail. I will be critical of their failure, but not overly critical. If it happens twice, I'll be really critical, but I can be very strong. But I think they all get the lessons. What does a good mentor do? I think... They let the individuals run as hard and as fast as they want. They bring them back, reel them back when they get too far out there so they don't hang themselves. And then they talk about the situation and how it may have been handled differently. It's the best way I can put it. Because you can't always go to a mentor and ask them, what should I do now? Because that, to me, isn't going to work. You've got to let them learn the hard way. You got to show them tough love, but you got to show them love. You got to celebrate success. And you got to spend time explaining your knowledge, explaining your experience, so they can take that into consideration when they're making that next decision that's going to matter. If you had to pick one book 
that early careerists who aspire to senior leadership should read? What would it be? So I'm going to take you down a different road. Okay. And it was a leadership book, but it wasn't about healthcare. It was about Shackelford. Okay. And his disaster. But it was a great book on leadership and how, based on adversity, he had to make some really tough decisions. Okay. There's a couple of them out there, and they all probably tell you the same story about what happened to that crew and what happened to them. In closing, for a, for a young person thinking about a career in health, why should they think about healthcare administration? I'd say there's a number of reasons. The first one is it's the best mission in the world. There's no job that has a better mission than anybody being in healthcare. That's overall in healthcare because you're able to take care of folks who are less fortunate than you are. Something happened to them and they come to you to help them. There is no better mission in the world, period, in my opinion. The second reason is it is an absolutely constantly fluid, constantly changing environment where nothing is the same as it was yesterday. And that, to me, is exciting. It gives me a reason to get up in the morning because I'm not going to know what's happening, what's going to happen that day. I know I can come in and look at my calendar and I can anticipate what I need to do for each of those meetings. But in between those meetings, something's going to happen to make me go in a different direction or think about something differently. And it is just a constantly dynamic environment to work in. And the third reason, quite frankly, is the people. The people who get into healthcare are unbelievably dedicated to the patients they serve. Nurses, therapists, and all of those types of professionals. Then you have the folks who are first careers who've never been in hospitals before, but get their first job maybe as a receptionist or one of our other entry-level jobs. And you can get them super excited about healthcare by talking to them about the mission, by talking to them about being part of a bigger team, by talking to them about how important their role is for patient care, even though they don't barely touch a patient. And you can get them excited about healthcare. So really... To me, it's just, it's the best. I I couldn't imagine doing anything else. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been great. You're welcome. Been a pleasure. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again in about two weeks.